0: And welcome to Game Brain, a podcast about board games and about our gaming group. I am Trey Alsup. I'm your host today. This is round 11, turn four. And we're going to talk about the 2005 splatter game Indonesia by Jaronin Duman and Joris Verzinga. And we're also going to talk about why we play games and maybe more importantly, why we stop playing games. And today I am joined by the philosophical gamer, Dimitri Portnoy.
1: Hello, everybody. So great to be here.
0: It is. Dimitri, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Um, how have you been doing?
1: Uh, I've been great. Uh, it feels like spring is beginning. Biden is in the White House. Um, <laughs> <two> weeks ago, <laughs> Two weeks ago, I stood in line for 10 hours uh, to make sure my best friend got ma- vaccinated uh, and two other people joined us. Um, and now it takes like 20 minutes to, for most people to get vaccinated. Uh, a shot, uh, when they have an appointment. Uh, so things seem like they're moving in the right direction. Um, and, uh, I can breathe a little easier and I don't want to, uh, jinx it. Uh, so I'll stop talking now.
0: Yeah. No, April 1st here in California was a day where like Facebook lit up because I think we, we all have so many friends that were able to, like, that was the first day where they could get vaccinated. And that was, that was certainly, um, the case for me. So, yeah, it, it's, and then I think uh, April 15th will be all adults in California. So there is kind of like a little bit of a feeling of optimism. I was driving down uh, Ventura Boulevard yesterday and like the restaurants are definitely open it's this kind of weird people dining on the sidewalks but it's packed like it looks bad (laughs) it looks bad but people are definitely ready
1: like uh, miami beach you know people are overflowing and they're standing in parking spaces and and it feels like the parking spaces that used to be reserved for picking up food are now filled with 20 somethings smoking
0: for people that don't no, by LA standards, Dimitri and I live in the same neighborhood. We are, even though people supposedly don't walk in LA, we are in walking distance. Yeah, we're with about each half other. An hour
1: away from each other, about the 1.3 miles away.
0: You're a walker.
1: I am, yes. I, I walk, uh, I average 10 miles a day.
0: There have been times during the pandemic when you, you have uh, swung by my apartment and we've had conversations on the uh, kind of like back balcony.
1: Uh, yes, so the balcony that faces a major street where people sometimes drag race, or, or at least that's what it sounds like. Yeah, and, and we held conversations uh, while you were on the balcony and I was on the lawn, uh, and we caught up and we talked about the podcast. Uh, I, I remember the, uh, one of the big major conversations we had was what we're going to do uh, when Biden Sweeps Trump uh, 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 out of office by a 10 point victory, um, and it actually happened. though, of course, not. That's,
0: that's it, not how it, I remember that conversation. But sure.
1: Uh, oh yeah, no, no. This was See,
0: one one thing. I'm still waiting for that. Whatever that party is, that celebration party, like it, it hasn't happened yet. But I can tell, like when we going down Ventura Boulevard, it, people are just ready anyway to party.
1: Uh, I can't wait for us to actually start the gaming in person. Uh, because for me, the online experience was uh, not the same thing. It's not the same thing uh, when I don't see you and Paul and Tom, Jake sitting across the table, Jesse. It's not the same thing where it feels almost like I'm compelled to play. Uh, rather than choosing to play, uh, um, it's hard to take a break when you're online. Uh, you, you, you kind of people are waiting for you to make the move. If you're playing asynchronously, I find myself waiting for the other person to make a move. And oh my god, why? don't right. know what I'm gonna do. Why aren't they taking the move? Um, and and, and uh, I, I find it difficult to uh, multi task uh, I, I, during a pandemic, you, you know, when I'm not in charge of each one of my tasks where somebody else is uh, uh, setting the schedule and setting the agenda. Uh, and and when everyone is in a room, it's a negotiation. It's a give and take. It, it's a human interaction. Uh, online, it feels like work uh, and, and work where somebody else is in charge.
0: Right, almost like obligation. That was like you'd think that playing asynchronously would be low stress or no stress, but that was not my experience at all. I felt like playing games asynchronously. I was devoting more time looking at the game. I was worried that people were waiting for me. I was annoyed when I was waiting for other people. It it wasn't ideal, and I think uh, you especially in our group you know, tend to kind of emphasize the, <clears throat> the additional pleasures of getting together as a group and the social aspects of it over the game itself a lot of times. That's and that's right. especially missing in these kind of our remote gaming during, during the pandemic. Uh,
1: I think of all of us, also Jake and I think Paul, uh, like the interaction. And, and, and uh, Paul especially talks about metagaming uh, as maybe even his primary interest.
0: I think we know what we were, we're going to get together. Like we can see the light at the end of the tunnel now Yes. of like some time where we can get together with folks. Like the vaccinations are happening so that, you know, about what a month and then another few days from now, I think we will have a quorum for an in-person game night of fully vaccinated people.
1: Yes. And people who've had two weeks since their second shot. So like exactly. peak Peak vaccination, so so we we don't spread anything to Tom and that and you know.
0: Anyway, I think I think we will have almost everybody in our group will be vaccinated plus the days at that point, and I'm certainly really looking forward to that. Maybe we'll instead. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, just do a reaction to last week's podcast and uh, Paul and Tom's discussion of of table image. And like the thing that kept that stuck with me that I thought about a lot during this week was um, the, the idea of like presenting a table image, but there was a beautiful caveat at the end, which was kind of like, and we all know, right. That like what people think their table image is, is not actually what their table image is like. And this, I felt like there needs to be a, a little bit of like the record needs to be corrected. Certainly not for my sake, but Speaking of table image, like Paul has presented himself as this, you know, ruthless game breaker, and some of that is like the branding for the podcast, but like that he's this horrible person who dines on the tears of his friends, and like this is the most delicious thing in the world to him, where like his friends lose all sense of control and you know flip a table.
1: Uh, yeah, is this,
0: and, and, and- is this an accurate description of? paul in actuality
1: that's absolutely false be- because paul has been a member of the group for 11 years he's probably the most beloved person there um, and not just our group paul had uh, a group with his next door neighbor for several years uh, who invited him to play and left him his games when he died And when Paul left to go to Florida with his wife, uh, where they taught college uh, for a few months, Paul had two game groups there who invited him over. Uh, And I think Paul is a delight and a pleasure. um, And one of the reasons he's such a delight and a pleasure is because he never lies. Uh, He may break a promise uh, in what contract law says anticipatory breach, uh, where he may have a deal with you and he's going to renege on it if he feels that you will renege on it uh, very soon. Uh, But he always gives the right information and he always either uh, takes his turn quickly or if he's thinking about it, he will tell you what he's thinking. He's going to narrate his thought process. What are my options here? What are the choices? What are other people going to do if I do this? Uh, so it's like having commentary. It's like having a, a slugger who's also a play by play and a color announcer. What, what, uh, more do you want from uh, a gaming partner?
0: Yeah, I don't, I'm, I might even take issue with like, he might break a promise. Like he, I don't, I can't think of a time where he's, he's done that. And I think you saw in his interaction with, with Tom that like, they're still arguing about like what the actual agreement was that each of them feel like the other one violated the spirit of, and like, this is the stuff of, of, of game nights, um, all the time, but I think we know if you needed to be picked up at the airport at four four o'clock in the morning, which who, I have, which, which you have, right? Yes. Paul is the guy who would do that. So he's also
1: driven um, me there at five a.m. You, you know, so Paul is a twenty-four-hour uh, friend.
0: So if yes. Yes. if yes, Paul is not the person that he's projecting to be, and Dimitri is not the non-gamer that he likes to think he is. Tom. He's said it a number of times now. He's feeling a little beat up uh, on the podcast, um, and I I wanted to kind of say, just so everyone is clear, we all love and adore Tom. Tom is one of the most generous people I know. He's uh, I'm, my oldest friend here in LA, uh, and part of what's going on, just so people kind of understand group dynamics, is that Tom is like the leader of the group like he organizes the game nights he kind of wants that role and so a lot of times i think the when we poke fun at tom we truly are like punching up because he's taken on this kind of like leader role and he takes on a lot of responsibility and you know people are pushing back part of out of fun but also kind of like because we have to you know and he does cherish this also like he he loves being the guy that um, players may unite against like he wants that role he's going to complain but he also savor savers it do you have Do you have any thoughts on on Tom in this matter, or is he just well, a minor?
1: Tom brought us all together. Uh, Tom Absolutely. started the group. Uh, Paul is in. Uh, Tom invited Paul. Uh, Tom invited Matt. Uh, to it. And, and th- that's how it all came together. Uh, and in fact, for him to have held his central position, really with no one wanting to challenge him, because we don't want to do the work. Uh, we don't want to spend <laughs> right. money, right? Uh, we, we don't want to. You know, find the space. Um, And and Matt has a game night as well. But the reason that Matt can step away uh, is because Tom is is always there. Uh, And uh, to play host, uh, to be a teacher, uh, to be a coordinator, to be a collector, uh, to be, I'm going to say this because it's too delicious. This is something that Paul calls Tom the cruise director. And I know it's a funny thing to call somebody, but if you think about it, a cruise director is a full-time job uh, that also requires uh, mood and and humor and, and, and getting people to enjoy themselves who, at the end of a hard day who are maybe not ready to have fun, right? And to get grumpy guys to have fun you know, and and grumpy women uh, uh, is a gift. Uh, And again, it's a very hard job that I wouldn't be willing to do. You you, you know, I I did it for a couple of years for a poker group. It went well. Right. uh, And I'm glad it's over because it was too hard.
0: All right. Well, let's let's wrap it up here because this is this is really going to go to Tom's head and he's going to be insufferable after that that said uh i hope everybody out there gets that we all really love tom and that this is with great fun when we all make fun of him and and root to beat him collectively all right a few items for game news here today um first off One thing I wanted to point out to people that I kind of missed at first is that there was a a New York Times article this last week on Matt Leacock. Matt Leacock's the designer of Pandemic, and it kind of does an interview with him and is looking at the fact that he is now working on a climate crisis game. So, Matt Leacock, you know, kind of big, big name in our hobby. Industry is now working on and i think the title they're going with now is daybreak um and th- this is especially interesting to me because like i am also working on a a climate game mine's going to be more of a large person larp style game uh i'm hoping to kind of do this for the un uh through their impact 2030 program but i I'm really excited like this is a this is we've seen a few games like uh Vitola c o two and it sounds like this is a tough thing that he's designing, but I'm really looking forward to that. I think it's big news that somebody like uh Leacock is doing a climate control game or just that this is the next thing for him
1: uh, I think're we gamifying climate anyway, carbon offsets are an example of gaming. Uh, a, 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 and trading in in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that was the idea. It feels like we're already like, that's already an idea that people have not rejected and moved past, but it's, that's feeling like 10 or 15 years ago. Now people didn't embrace it, unfortunately, but maybe that's kind of like the approach going forward. Anyway, there'll be a link in the, uh, the show notes here for people. If you want to check out that uh, very good article, um, on what matt leacock is working on and then kind of like final um bit of news here uh john company second edition has launched on kickstarter again link will be in the show notes we've had a a decent bit of discussion about this uh, on our facebook page i encourage people to go and take a look at this did you did you play john company First edition at all, Dimitri?
1: Uh, I don't think I did, um, a- and uh, it- it's a colonial game that's critical of colonialism. That's kind of the impression that I get.
0: I'm not sure it's that clear cut, but so the the company of John Company is the East India Company, so it is specifically looking at that in India, and I think this kind of like debate of like where does this game fit um is important it's also one that the designer cole worley ha is addressing he actually uh i wanted to uh, this will be in the show notes as well he's put out a design diary on board game geek in which he addresses this subject i think um not as an apology but he wanted to make a distinction between imperialism and colonialism like obviously there's a lot of overlap there but they're not exactly the same thing um But, you know, if you want to be at least hear from the designer about what he's trying to engage with in making this game, here's, you know, he's had a chance to express it now in the in the in these design notes on BGG. So I would encourage people to check that out and then come on our Facebook page and uh, and discuss it. I think I played this game uh, once. We didn't get through it. And like a lot, and I think then Tom on Facebook said something like he thought it was a really interesting failed experiment or something to that effect, which to me kind of dif- is the way I feel about a lot of Cole Worley games is like, I think his games are really super interesting where he's trying different stuff Um and it doesn't quite work for me. I'm not a huge root fan, but I know that a lot of people love root and the, the weird inter- you've played root. Yes,
1: I have played Root, uh, and, and Root has a theme that that blocks me from really grokking its mechanisms, uh, k- kind of like Everdell. It's like the moment we start talking about twigs and berries and furry bunnies, uh, my my brain kind of turns off.
0: Uh, one final note here on uh, John Company. Uh, friend of the pod and friend Candace Harris has done a – full preview of uh, John Company's second edition on BGG. Again, link will be in the show notes. Very extensive. A lot of work uh, and great write-up, especially if you're deciding whether to get this or not. I am sure that there will be people that Matt is probably already back to this game and we will get a chance to play it and then make up our own mind if we're horrible people for, for playing this game. Game! Yeah. These are games we like to play. These are games to going to bring. Oh, baby. I feel so much better.
1: Uh, I actually, uh, I I don't know if I should tell you this, but I prefer the second version. No, because it it, it, it because your your voice <laughs> deserves the 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 more glamorous, uh, more sparkling. Uh, bell-like setting of the second version i i know this is raw this is more cbgb this is punk um and 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 uh, i i have respect for that
0: that's who i am
1: yes (laughs) but but i want i i want the bells and whistles and now i think i just offended alfred uh and i love bells and whistles
0: dimitri what what games are on your brain what are you thinking about
1: uh, well, I played uh, two games uh, with Jennifer and Bruce, uh, who are much, much better players than I am. And I easily won both of them. Uh, and I feel ashamed about it to some extent. Uh, there are uh, uh, Praga Kaput Regni uh, that was reviewed in this podcast. You you and Ben did it. Uh, and a new game called Maglev Metro. Uh, and the reason I won... Is because I didn't try to understand the game or what it was about or what we were doing or, or the theme was or what the mechanisms were, uh, but basically used uh, just gamer heuristics, right? Like build your engine and, and uh, expand production capacity, ensure access to rare resources. You know, zig when the others zag and, and try to get like secret victory conditions at the beginning so you know what to aim towards and i i won without thinking i i won reflexively uh without fully understanding what i was doing uh and uh we're gonna talk about Wait, this i'm
0: con- i'm confused because you just you just Hold on a second. I'm confused. You said you didn't think about it at all. You just won reflexively. But you also just l- identified a number of very specific strategies, ideas that you applied to your game. So I'm, how, 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 how are you having it both ways here?
1: Uh, because those strategies are things that I don't have to really think about. Those strategies are things that I can do automatically. They're unconscious in many respects to me. They have been consolidated. I'm giving you a preview of what we're going this to talk pre- about in, in, in the member-specific segment. But one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it is because it happens to me. It happened to me. I have internalized things finally after playing games for 16 years. There are certain things that come to me naturally. Jennifer and Bruce are much better players than I am. Jennifer has been playing games for much longer than any of us. Uh, She still, to her credit, and Bruce, they're trying to really understand and master and really uh, focus on the individual game, on the game they have in front of them, uh, and and try to understand how it works. Uh, And I just went... You know, I won by not focusing on the specifics, not focusing on the particulars. Uh, I don't care what, you know, about the Habsburgs. I actually care about the Habsburgs, but I don't care about that particular <laughs> historical period and what was happening in Prague and the electors and, and whatever. Maglev, Metro, they're robots. Uh, it's a pick-up and drop-off game. It's it's very nice. So both games that I actually recommend, but games that I wasn't challenged enough to to like fully consciously engage in, cortically engage in, pay a lot of attention to. Uh, you, you, you know, and, and it, it's an interesting. Uh, I, I think it's important, and I, I think it's. Uh, something that game players and game designers might want to think about. Uh, n- n- not because I had that experience, but because I think a lot of, I think you have that experience a lot. I, I, I think uh, one of the reasons that Ben loved Prague uh, Kapo Regni more than you did, uh, I feel is because you may not have been particularly engaged by the particulars of the game. Whereas for Ben, uh, uh, the uh, the game fulfilled what he really wants from a game, what he really likes from a game, wh- wh- which is these mechanisms that feed into uh, his like unconscious internalized drives and unconscious internalized. Uh, what what right on
0: my brain. Thank you Dimitri. In case you guys can 't tell there's a little bit of delay in our voices going back, so we're apologize when we step over each other a little bit um, so i've been thinking a lot i've been working with the reacting to the past people, which is a a group of uh, professors that do educational simulations at the undergraduate level that specifically engage with topics and periods of history and so i've been thinking a lot about um, you know when you play a role and what you kind of like engage with when you play a role, especially when you're looking at historical figures. And so almost not by definition, but in effect, when you play a historical figure, there's going to be problematic things about playing these figures. And I think this is an, an interesting overlap in a lot of the board games that we're playing now or played in the past. And it seems like this year has been a good year for, calling into question a lot of stuff that was kind of, they're not necessarily assumptions, but we do play a lot of games that are essentially about colonialism or conquering the world or Forex games, which are about expanding, exterminating, extracting, exploiting. Like these are kind of like whether it's space themed or it's themed with actual history, like the mechanisms themselves are kind of like engaging with a colonial or imperialist uh, mindset. And so it's just kind of thinking about this and like how a lot of times the point of some of these games is to walk in other people's shoes. And I'm wondering, like, this is a thing I'm wrestling with and I don't have answers on it. It's like, uh, is it always like, do, are there certain shoes that we actually don't want to walk in? Like, do I, we play a lot of games in which you're a captain of industry In the industrial revolution like there's a lot of games like that you play a lot of games where you're like expanding into certain continents and like are those the shoes we need to walk in when we play games whether it's a historical simulation or it's a board game so i think i think it's kind of right that there's been an accounting that we at least call into question why we play some of these games that that we play here in in 2021 does that make any sense
1: uh yes um when you play games you internalize you consolidate uh you you make the, the lessons unconscious um and, and it's hard to know because what you've learned is unconscious it's really hard to be aware of what it is that you've learned you know have you learned only interesting economic principles and mechanisms or or have you also internalized certain values, uh, certain human values, uh, uh, certain values about competition and certain values about oppression um, that, again, it's very hard to be conscious of it because what you've learned, what you've internalized, what you've learned to react to reflexively is unconscious. Uh, and it's it takes work to make it conscious again and bring it up and examine it, uh, and it's work that we have not evolved to do. We've evolved to do less right. mental work than more mental work.
0: Yeah, and I'm not, and I'm not sure it's necessarily something that like individuals are capable of doing with any kind of perspective. Anyway, like if Dimitri, say you know we were going to do a, a historical simulation set in America in the early 19th century is is there benefit in you playing a segregationist and understanding or you know or a slave owner and understanding that perspective like does that actually help to plan to play that role and then or on the other side if i play an enslaved person from that historical period am i actually like is the thing that I would do by engaging in a game, which almost by definition is reductive is like, is there a, a danger that I might think I understand something about this now because I've played a game that like, I'm, I got nowhere near actual experience there. Like the danger, is there a danger that like I'm doing a performative blackface by by playing something that's completely outside of my experience like there how much there would need to be a lot of help to experience like how you know do you understand what i'm saying though it's like yeah there's, uh, a, there's the walking in the whole even like walking in other people's shoes thing almost to me feels like a a dangerous model
1: now uh, th- there are some gender uh and critical race theorists uh who even oppose fiction for the reason that uh, people in real life don't want to expose themselves uh, and make themselves vulnerable, make their inner thoughts and inner experiences available. But people who are characters in books and movies, that's what they exist, to share their inner worlds. Uh, so their point is... When we watch a movie, when we read a book about someone else's experience, it creates an expectation that people in real life will be forthcoming and sharing. And if they're not, and why should they be, uh, we would resent them. But there's another thing. um, uh, You probably know the game designer who said that the definition of a game is a series of meaningful choices. Um, I, I read that definition in the, in, in the Ralph Koster book. Uh, he right. named the designer. That designer is, under, I've heard of him, but I don't have the name on the tip of my tongue. The problem with playing a game uh, about enslaved people or the Holocaust uh, is that it's quite possible that they did not have meaningful choices let alone a series of meaningful choices in the economic arena, because games are about Mm -hmm. economics. uh, Enslaved people do not have meaningful economic choices uh, within the larger framework. They, they, they certainly might have choices about their personal experience and, and, but they don't have choices in the larger framing uh, of the economy. And, There are many people in the world, in America, who do not have meaningful choices, and by creating a game which is a series of meaningful choices about being an enslaved person or about being homeless, is a a structural lie uh, because it gives you the impression that everyone can make meaningful economic choices. Uh, Mm -hmm. Economists certainly think so. Uh, I doubt that. I I, I think that needs to be proven. And I think in a country where we certainly want to expand the ability of people to make meaningful economic choices and meaningful political choices, of course, which which is all the news in Georgia and Alabama uh, and, and, and many other places, I'm sure, including California, it's a question that needs to be addressed. And making a game assumes that that question has been answered.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. <clears throat> That's a big one. Does does it assume it's been answered? <clears throat> I guess what I, th- what I would say is like my default, my reaction to what you say is like my default in making these games when I'm writing roles is that goes to your point is I try to make sure that every role I write is important. It has power. Like you were talking about economics, whether we, we could also call that power you know, I'm not going to write a role that's powerless. I want to write a role in which the the role has agency and can have an effect on the game and on other people. And that's hard to do to write a game that's balanced where everyone counts, especially if your player count is 30 or 40 people. But that at least is the goal. And that's my, that's my starting point. And maybe because I don't know how to do like, what, it you know, what is a game where you don't you, if is it even if you can't make a meaningful choice, it's not really a game, right? Like so yeah. don't do that. <laughs> anyway, I don't have any answers on this. Uh this is just, you know, a little bit of like what's on my brain and stuff that I'm trying to think about when when doing this. Um w- because this is kind of like my field is, you know, writing educational simulations, sometimes historical, trying to wrestle with that. Why don't we get to our game review? All right, shifting gears. Today, we are going to talk about Indonesia. This is a splatter game from 2005. The designers are, and I'm going to apologize for not getting these names great, but the designers are Jeroen Duman and Joris Verzinga. The artist is Jeroen Kesselar and Ints Moet. All right, let me actually explain this game. To people and and do a, and do a game review here. Okay, so Indonesia. Speaking of colonialism <laughs> or imperialism. Uh, yep. So this is this is one of those games where the um, the player with the most money at the end wins. Like this is a kind of class of games. Like how do you win? You have the most money at the end. So. In the game of Indonesia, each player plays the role of a rich dude who is going to start and operate companies in the Southeast Asian islands of what will become Indonesia. So, what we are doing is we are acquiring companies that we will then operate, shipping goods to different cities in the region, which would then pay us for those goods. So, there's an economic game. But this is also like one of these games where you are not your company. Uh, you know, you are. I, I'm saying like rich guy because the companies are things that you acquire, but you may not hold on to them for the entire game. You know, the goal is to make money you personally. It's not just run a good company, like running a good company can make you a lot of money, but you also like, that's not running the good company is not the end, the end goal um, exploiting that company or, or uh, using it to help you make money. That is the goal. It's one of those games. So this game is played over three historical eras. In each era, new companies become available to be acquired. So at the beginning of the game, this would be a rice company or a spice company. And then later on, it will be rubber or even oil. The number of products that you can kind of deliver to the cities that they will pay you for and the amount they pay you uh, changes as the game progresses. In addition to that, there are shipping companies and shipping companies are the means which these goods get delivered from the place in which they're produced to the cities that need them and will pay you for them. And there's money to be made by transporting these, these goods. So if I have a rice company, it exists at a specific spot on the map and I produce rice for every chit I have on a space on the map. And then I need to ship that rice to a city And if I do this, you know, yay, I get paid for my rice, uh, but I have to pay the shipping company for each space the rice traveled to go through. So if I sold my rice at a city for $20 cash, which is the price that cities pay for rice, I have to pay a shipping company five cash to get it there. And maybe it's more than five. If it traveled two spaces, it's 10. Uh, and so, and it can actually continue to go up so much so that I might even pay more to transport my rice than it was worth, than it was actually worth in the first place. So I can lose money on, on the deal. I have to try to sell every, uh, thing that I produce in the game. And so that's one of the kind of richnesses of the game. The other thing is, is if you do this, if you successfully export your, you know, get your rice and you deliver it to the cities, then you get to expand. So the the size of your company uh, increases. That's a good thing. It means you, you're, you're like stake in this company goes up. If you didn't successfully do this, you can still expand your company, but you have to pay for it. Players are going to operate their companies one at a time in turn order until all the companies have been operated. So this kind of delivering your goods to city, it's actually like very simple, but in practice on the board, it becomes deeply complex. And that's before we even get into mergers. And mergers are where this game really kind of super splatters and goes to the the next level, which is that as the game progresses, players can create mergers between companies of, of similar type. And in fact, you can be forced to merge. And then you have an auction to determine who will actually control this larger merged company in the future with the person who gets outbid, essentially getting bought out and getting a large influx of cash into their personal coffers. So like you lost your company, but now you have a ton of cash. And so you can buy some other company. All right, Dimitri, is this, this sound like the game you've played?
1: Uh, this is the game that I played. This is my favorite splotter game. I, 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 I want to mention something that Paul said about it, uh, which uh, after playing it about a dozen times, he says he's just beginning to actually understand it. But this is a game that is a, is something essential for me, has an essential quality for me, can be enjoyed without fully understanding it. Uh, for a variety of reasons. <laughs> uh, your explanation of it uh, is, is excellent. It makes it sound a little dry. It makes it sound like, oh, it's a stock game, it's a company game. Uh, but it's every time a company expands, it expands geographically. So this is also an area control game. It is also a production game. And how you produce and when you yep. produce is not just – interesting and not just complicated it's also intuitive you can look at the board and Mm -hmm. you see what's going to happen and you can plan plan in advance when your company expands you may be taking over territory that tom's company is hoping to expand into so there's an interesting way in which players can come into conflict it's also a shipping game and it's a shipping game with a lot of the mechanisms of 18xx and Age of Steam built into it. Uh, It's an engine-building game because there's so many things you can improve uh, in, in your abilities. You can improve how many companies you can merge into one when you propose a merger. You can improve your shipping. You can improve your growth. It's a game where you can focus on production or on shipping and see if you can win just with shipping alone. It's a game where there's definitely a pivot at some point where it becomes really profitable to propose a merger, and you better be the first person to do it, and you better have enough money to be able to buy the resulting company. All of these mechanisms are... are, do two things. One is the game very quickly gets out of the way, so you're actually competing with your fellow players. You're also cooperating with your fellow players because delivering goods to a city right. can make it grow, can make it expand, which means it can accept more group of goods, which is profitable for everybody. And it's also a beautiful game. Uh, it's a gorgeous map. Uh, the rules are intuitive. You keep waiting for the oil and the rubber to come on, scene, on the scene. You can combine your rice and spice into Siafajit, which is like a, a TV dinner company, which is
0: always, always <laughs> Right. Fun. It's the most difficult concept in the game is that at a certain point, you can actually like merge your rice company with your spice company and create a new product that sells for much more. So this is one of those workarounds from like shipping kind of choking you out is that you need more expensive goods that you can ship over greater distances without going into debt. Uh,
1: you can also merge companies on different islands, uh, which produce the same thing. Uh, so that gives you a new base of operations to ship from. Uh, and there's so many considerations, so many rich decisions, uh, and I always feel like I'm not fighting the game. The game is actually letting me do what I want, which is a, a hallmark of Splatter games. I'm actually co- interacting, sometimes cooperating and sometimes competing with the fellow players who are making my life miserable, but also really, really... Interesting. <laughs> Can I propose this merger before Trey does? uh can i get enough money for my company uh if i wind up the loser uh or should i even consider selling so i'll get more money to buy something else and it's a beautiful board uh it's a a a game that combines age of steam and 18xx mechanisms uh for me really beautifully
0: uh wow. or Like like simplified versions of those things, right? Yes. Like it's I not like say. on some level I feel like this 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 game's very um like the actual things you have to do are very simple and they produce rich gameplay, which is kind of a a splatter thing. I like what one of the things you're saying before, you know, I don't know whether it's cooperation exactly, but it is certainly the case in this game that you can't do it all yourself. Like you need help, especially early on in the game. Like you might control a rice company. It's like, you're not going to have a shipping company to deliver your goods yet. You're going to have to use someone else's shipping company. So there's like a constant negotiation uh, or even like I'm going to use somebody's shipping company because like they're committed to this area and then I'm going to build near it so that I know I can use a shipping company to do it. Um, You know, your comment before where Paul starts to feel like after 10 plays, he's starting to get it. I always find like when I start to feel like I understand this game, my next game immediately humbles me. You know, I, I, the, the lessons of splatter games always remain elusive. You know, it, it, there's plenty of games where you pull a certain lever and you get a, you know, a kind of result that I can count on In splatter. I often feel like I pull a lever and, you know, a couple of steps happen and something completely unexpected happens that I didn't, I didn't predict, and I and it calls into question, like, why did I pull that lever? Should I pull this lever? Um, and that's kind of delicious. And and like at the core of this may be again this like merger question of like when, like you said, there can be some importance of like who decides, who can call a merger, so you can control who gets merged together. And then there's this you know fantastic thing that happens in the auction, which is when you have an auction over a merger the price gets bid up and um, you have a a kind of very difficult decision about like generally one person is going to have more money than the other and so you can tell who can win it but whether they should win it is another question because you know losing a merger fight losing with quotes might be great it might you know, if uh, if the price of a merger gets really bid up, you suddenly have tons of cash to do other things. That can be the right move is to lose a merger sometimes. And that's a really rich decision space that I continue to struggle to consolidate maybe.
1: Uh, what's <laughs> interesting for me about this auction in Indonesia is it's the best auction of all games because it's the auction where everybody has the full, the most complete information. In all other games, I can think of Estates, Fresh Fish, uh, Age of Steam. The auction requires you to kind of have a grasp on what you're bidding on, on what its actual value is in, fu- in the future gameplay. But here, you see exact you have complete information. You can see the board state. You, you you know what the company is producing. You can actually mm-hmm. calculate what a company should be worth. And then, of course, that would be the starting bid. And how much do you want to hurt Tom? How much do you want? You know, he really mm-hmm. wants this company to keep producing. But if you hurt him badly, if you take the company, if you take the merch company away from him, you're giving him a ton of cash. And maybe he sees mm-hmm. another merger possibility that you don't. But of course, again, it's right in front of you. It's right under your nose on this beautiful map.
0: Yeah, that can be that calculation you're talking about. In like That may be like, my most negative thing, and there's very little about this game that I think negative, is that like that can be mathy. Like you said, that's not hidden, but there are times when you can look and say, we know we're only going to play one more round of this game. So I only have like one more operation, uh, that operation on the final turn is going to be worth double. So you can kind of like figure out exactly how much value a company is going to be worth. So for some people that might get too mathy, I mean, it's still just multiplication, but like, that would be, there are times where you break out the pencil and decide, you know, like what's the pain point where I'm spending too much for what I'm going to get later on. But I do find like that moment of trying to decide how far do I push an auction is kind of delicious and also very frustrating in that I'm often in that moment where I just say, I don't know, like I don't have any confidence about where I should stop here or not. And that's that's kind of rich. And maybe if I understood the game better, I would feel more confidence in that. But it's kind of, it's also pleasurable being in that I don't know frame of mind there. Plenty of times, Dimitri, you and I both have rice or so we're going to f- form a set 5G company and you know you hold the rice and I hold the spice. And we, we have the biggest shares in these companies, but every- anyone can bid on it as long as they have the slot in order to take it. It's just that um, they would be paying out both of us for our shares. But that means that you know the auctions are often involved the entire table.
1: Uh, and shipping when there are mergers in shipping, everyone can have, it it can have huge consequences for everybody. Uh, Not just for the people who are shipping, but uh, who actually own the shipping companies, but people who need to ship. Uh, And and the choice of uh, how far something will ship and who ships first uh, can affect whether you, as you mentioned before, make money or lose money uh, on a deal, actually lose cash on a deal. So other players' decisions can affect you in multiple ways and and have ripple effects uh, that spread out from the initial choice, uh, which, again, are very rich. On the other hand, not terribly complicated. That not uh,
0: in yeah the mechanism of- is not complicated the implications might be more so. So one thing I want to do you you at one point kind of talked about this as a stock game. Uh, I want to put a little asterisk on that and say this is not a stock game in the way that eighteen um, XX are 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 stock games. Rather, you you um you hold a deed to a company, and as you expand that company, like the number of spaces that you have on the board that ends up being like the size of that company. So when we merge and I have, you know, five rice spots in my company and you have three, if I have five rice and you have three spice and we merge, I essentially have five shares and you have three shares. So they're not shares per se, but you it is like a nice baby's first stock game in that it can kind of introduce that concept. Uh, it's played out pretty Pretty simply here, um, if you're not ready for the, the load of a, of a true stock game the way 18xx games are, I also wanted to like hang my hat on the kind of very simple, it's not exactly a tech tree, but there's a research and development aspect to this game um that's on the board if you look at the board the very pretty board of indonesia you'll see it's just this box over in the corner and the way it works is that every round you can improve one area you can upgrade one area of the game uh these are things like slots which are the number of companies you can hold You can upgrade your mergers, which means that you can have bigger and bigger mergers that fit into one of your slots. You can have larger companies or propose bigger mergers by having more mergers. Uh, If you're running shipping companies, you need to expand your hull, which is the amount that your ships can carry. So, you know, you can deliver more goods, you can make more more money. They even have a, an interesting thing, which is called expansion, which means that, like, when I expand, either by paying for it or that I su- successfully delivered all my goods, normally you start out, like, when you expand, you just add another square. I can expand my company into one other area. But if I've upgraded my expansion, I can expand into two companies or three companies. And again, this is kind of like important. And that means that when I merge, I will have more shares uh, that I can get paid for. So it's a way of like building your. Um, Your investment in your own own companies, both in terms of the amount of goods you make and in terms of like the quote unquote stocks that you hold in your company. So if you're an engine builder mindset, which I tend to be, expansion can look really attractive. Then there's turn order in this game. And turn order is this interesting thing. It can be super important. It can determine the order that you pick your companies. It can be determine the order in which you operate your companies. And this, this can be super important because you're always racing to get your goods to market. Um, so we have an auction for turn order. And one of the interesting quirks about the game is that you spend money to determine your turn order in this game. But then you save that money and it counts towards your score in the end so that money's not completely lost and then one of the things you can upgrade in the game through the research and development action is you you can get a multiplier on that bid so that if i upgrade it you know the you know the $1 that i spend for turn order it can now be 10 so you start to get efficiencies in terms of controlling the game through turn order and that was one thing like when we first first started playing the game we didn't appreciate how important that was and I feel like the more we've played it the more that looks like a viable option like all of the choices here in terms of what you can expand in R&D feel completely viable and I'm still struggling to to value them I feel like there's a each of these is a, are viable ways to go uh, at the beginning of the game and make the gameplay really interesting but it's also simple it's really easy to understand so when you look at certain games and you're looking at tech trees or how do you expand what people can do Go back and look at in Indonesia and like their super simple way of like expanding your power, or your tech tree through the course of the game.
1: Uh, this game is obviously for our group. Right. Uh, it, it hits a sweet spot. Um, I believe it's the second game that uh, Matt played with us uh, way uh-huh. back when. Maybe new. Uh, I remember him coming in. Uh, he actually lived in Indonesia. Uh, for a bit when his father worked there he spent summers there uh he taught us some indonesian words while playing it uh what's interesting to me is uh at that time matt was not a huge gamer matt stopped Mm -hmm. playing games with us he was interested uh but this was maybe one of the first definitely the first plotter he ever played uh and One of the, maybe one of the first board games he took seriously, you know, with, with his second time with, with Tom at Tom's game night, I think he enjoyed this immensely. I think it's very rare that a game that is challenging and interesting to someone like Paul or someone like you can also be enjoyed by a relative newcomer. And I think he was actually a contender. I think we all were uh, contenders Mm -hmm. in that game until Tom ran away with it because I believe, if I remember correctly, this was years ago, uh, he actually did the mathy calculation at the end uh, with, with the doubled value of the production and knew exactly how to take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, Tom seems to excel at auction games, especially when it's about like correct pricing or taking things past a certain pain point where other people will balk and 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 he will he will not. Uh, I'm certainly thinking of this game like there's a number of games that like have come out in the last year and a half that I'm kind of eager to play when I'm in person. But I think if we were going to have a game night tomorrow with our game group like this might be my choice. Of, games to, of a game to play with our group that would engage us in the things that we, we want to engage in.
1: I, I, I think the game uh, City of Big Shoulders uh, is a game that I certainly brings to my, is brought to my mind when I think of Indonesia. Uh, right. Because there's a certain friendliness to it. Uh, even the <laughs> competition right but the barrier of entry is fairly low uh, I don't think you're gonna have the kind of debate about rules and, and, and initial conditions uh, in, and which companies are available and the beginning at the beginning of Indonesia where that you can have when you're trying to play an 18xx game uh, and, and, and if you get one thing wrong, you know the whole the whole game is going to be ruined, and, and you'll have to right. all over. Uh, uh, Jim Schveda, who uh, is a classical uh, uh, commentator uh, uh, at 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 KPCC or one one of our uh, public s- stations, and who wrote uh, a big book of classical music reviews, once said, "You can't have the Ninth Symphony every day. You know, <laughs> it's just too too big of an ask." Uh, but Indonesia is one of those games that is incredibly serious, incredibly crunchy, but easier, easier to get into. Uh, for me, it's the easier yeah. plotter to get into. It's much easier and more intuitive than food chain magnet. Uh, it's also mm-hmm. a full meal as opposed to the appetizer of bus. Uh, and, uh, for me, as an alternative to Age of Steam, there's something, uh, it just has a little more meat on the bones than Age of Steam. <laughs> um, sure. Because it's also a production game. Right? It, it, it's also a merger game. Uh, it, it And it has a much more beautiful map. Uh, it, it, it just has Things to it has a dessert, whereas Age of Steam is just this big Flintstones like hunk of meat that you have to attack with, with knife and fork and, and and try to get through. Uh, if, if that metaphor makes sense,
0: sure. Well, you, you mentioned this is your favorite Splotter, uh, this is also my favorite Splotter. I, I went back and looked at, uh, you know, when we did our top 20 games for Game Brain uh this made my top 20 list i think i had this as my 11th favorite game oh no ninth favorite game uh the super fan among our group is paul i think paul had this as his sixth highest rated game and it also made jennifer's list it didn't make your list do you think it would make a top 20 list for you now
1: uh it would uh my top uh 20 list at, at the time had much more to do with what we were playing at that moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that uh, I, I insisted on putting in fun games like Sheriff. Fun games.
0: Fun games. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, is this game not fun? Party
1: games. I, I should say. party okay, games. All shorter right. games. Uh, for reasons that have to do more with politics uh, and image uh than than had to do with like my genuine appreciation uh and uh, I was deliberately avoiding uh putting on games that I felt other people would you, you know and uh, um one of That's the- okay.
0: you don't you don't have to defend your list, I just more wanted to get towards yeah um the that, have- that you're a fan uh, one of the yeah. questions I have for you is. Oh. is-
1: I had no idea that you loved this so much more than Food Chain Magnet. Uh, I think oh, no. there are 20 games list before the second edition came out uh, and before you reviewed it. Uh, I remember that your review of Food Chain Magnet, the uh, uh, the for the, the game that's all the rage right now, uh, was both appreciative and admiring and also cautious. Uh, uh, and and I, I want you to. I'd like you to elaborate on that. I, like compare the two. Sure. Why do these games? See, why do these games seem to have such a different effect on different people? Who are they for? Are, are the, do you feel the designers consciously design these games for different audiences?
0: Yeah, the distinction I would make, and I think, listen, uh, like Tom loves food chain magnate and he champions that game i i feel like you and i are championing indonesia here and like i can like respect food chain magnate um while without being in love with it i will certainly play it some more and it certainly falls in the realm of like a game that i have a lot more to learn about um, but it also kind of like frustrates me in a way that Indonesia never does. Like I, even when I'm losing in Indonesia, I feel like I'm doing interesting things and I'm really engaging. Um, I made a mental note in thinking about splatter games. Like Indonesia was the game that made me really feel like, okay, these guys are geniuses, you know, splatters are gamers games, but especially this kind of thing where like they've created something that's so elusive in terms of the puzzle that it creates, and I realize that I have kind of bounced off of the splatter games that are a little more sandboxy or they or the way I think of them is like they tend to have like a menu of things that you can do that you choose between like when you play food chain magnet, you're looking at all of these milestones you have to get, and you're also looking at these um progressions of like I'm gonna take a you know uh I don't remember like they 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 kind of level up in a sense that your delivery boy is going to become a truck driver is going to become something else your fry cook become a become a you know a burger master or whatever and you're like you have different levels of executives that go up and so you like you have to sit there and study the menu in food chain magnate. if you're playing antiquity there are 20 or so different buildings that you can build. And this becomes a huge decision space in terms of like, what buildings do I build and in what order do I build them? If I play roads and boats again, I'm kind of like looking at a menu of options that I can do. And like, that's what's kind of like amazing about these games and that there's so much freedom for you to explore and to try different stuff. And there's totally different ways of doing stuff. Um, I also tend to find that decision space to be almost like too large and overwhelming in a way that is not pleasurable, and I do gravitate towards Indonesia. I love bus. I, I like your you know appetizer thing. I I think I do, pref- and so like I'm gonna fall on that side of the splatter spectrum, and I would probably also include uh, Great Zimbabwe. And I would also include, like, I'm a big fan of Greed Incorporated. I always want to play Greed Incorporated. And it's kind of like the splatter game that doesn't get much uh, attention. But if I'm having to study the menu, I'm finding I'm bouncing. Like, antiquity annoys me. I realize it's great, but I struggle with that game. Roads and Boats, brilliant, but it's like it's too much for me. Um, And, you know, studying those options can be too much for me.
1: Uh, You mentioned milestones um, in in Food Chain Magnet. And and for me, milestones always make me feel like I'm playing against the game. And maybe the game is plotting against me. That that maybe uh, uh, an order to the milestones or specific groupings of milestones, that if I don't get all of them or don't get them in the right order, I'm going to lose. Uh, And and that has nothing to do with engaging the other players. It has to do with the game designer making me feel stupid and inadequate. And I know that that's not the key. But what I appreciate, and and you you called uh, Indonesia a baby stock game, but when I play a game, I feel like a child. You know, and there are many things, like I have to learn rules, I have to sit there, like, in the class, I have to take turns, like, all of those make me feel like I'm a kid again, and, and I liked being a kid, I don't mind feeling like a kid, uh, so... You're when,
0: playing, you're playing. Yeah.
1: I'm playing, and when Indonesia also gives me a beautiful map, and it, 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 it gives me TV dinners, and, 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 and actually <laughs> isn't... Sitting on me, (laughs) you know, isn't isn't wrestling with me, but is actually refereeing a a wrestling match between me and you and Paul and Tom, I I feel better. It makes me feel emotionally better. It makes me more able to have fun with it. I, has Ben played it? Do you know? Has Ben played it? Uh Uh-huh.
0: I don't. I don't know.
1: I would love to know uh, uh, if he has, uh, and and I think we. Sh- it would be very interesting for to play it with him, because for me Ben is uh, between me and you in in terms of where his tastes are. Uh, he's much more willing to uh, engage in a really crunchy puzzle. Uh, I, I think uh, than I am. Uh, but he's also kind of interactive in, in a way that I, I think you love to engage the game itself. Uh, I almost always want to engage uh, other people, and, and, and Ben, I think, is in between us. I wonder if this is going to be something he enjoys more than Food Chain Magnet, which he has said he loves uh, and wants to play more of, or if he will think that it's too basic.
0: Yeah, I, don't, I think it's hard for anybody to play Indonesia and come away saying it's too basic. But I also, you know, much like Splatter Games, trying to figure out Ben's tastes as elusive I, I don't I don't think I have an ability to predict what Ben is going to like or or not like he he defies uh, explanation or, or comprehension. But I, I agree. I'd be curious to see what how he reacts to that. And he's certainly somebody who doesn't. You say you want to play against people, but I never think of you as an aggressive player. No, no, uh, I just ben st- does not shy away from aggression if the game calls for it. So he, he might really en- enjoy that. Like he's not uncomfortable with aggression the way some people are
1: yeah uh for me this is uh, a full board euro that avoid that never uh that avoids the parallel play trap uh, i don't think it's possible to to parallel play uh, uh uh indonesia you're always interacting with other people but it still feels well, maybe
0: they- define that what define for people parallel play
1: Oh, it's what Tom talks about, where you're just basically engaging your own. You're building your own empire. You're you're solving your own. Oh,
0: multiplayer solitaire. Uh, thank oh you. yeah, yeah. Multiplayer. Right. This you, have, you. don't have your own board here at all. Yes. everything's out there uh, and is and is interactive in ways that are wonderful or frustrating. But yeah, although there's not a lot of direct aggression in this game, you are racing for spots. And there can be, you can make very important decisions in terms of like where you place your ships in terms of what you're connecting or what you're not connecting. And there very much can be some play of like, I'm concerned that such and such a player is running away with things. So like my best move for me for the money, I might, might be to connect to that person's oil fields, but that would be game over. And that person just straight up wins like that. You do make those kind of calculations, but that's not exactly the direct aggression, which often I don't like in games. This feels like the right amount of decision made, interactive decision making. That's not take that.
1: Any negatives for you that you might want to mention?
0: Um, simple mechanisms. It can still be a little bit of a tough teach, but it's, it's an appropriate teach for the game brain crowd. Like I said, there can be, it can be a little mathy, uh later on where you're trying where you can kind of like break out the pencil and decide uh you know I'm going to have a certain number of operations at the end to determine stuff uh but that would that would be it uh this game has high replayability because your ability to kind of like figure it out is remains completely elusive you, like there's no I don't think there's a dominant strategy where you break the game by doing this one thing, like that's completely outside the realm of possibility. Playing Indonesia, so uh, no, very to, few negatives.
1: Yeah, one negative for me, uh, it, it's the length of play. Uh, I, I, it's not necessarily a negative, but this is a, a four-hour game. Yeah, uh, uh, and it feels to me, it feels like it should be a two and a half to three-hour game. Uh, I don't know why this plays consistently much longer than say barrage. I, I have a feeling it's because at the end and with the mergers people need to think about very hard and very long uh, I don't know how it would shorten it i I don't think it can be shortened, but this is this can play longer than food chain magnet. Uh, and it's
0: it's, uh, right i don't know it's just because they're meaty decisions and i and i wouldn't surprise me at all if we had people uh write into the facebook group and say when we play indonesia we finish in two and a half hours like we we tend to take long we tend to be we take longer than a lot of other people when we play games but that's just because these are important meaningful decisions and people in our group will take their time making them I don't I'm not bored at four hours. There are games that can be two and a half hours like Prago is gonna play a lot shorter, but I also feel like I can be trapped in that game. I haven't felt trapped in Indonesia. Even when I'm losing, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I'm engaged. So it it doesn't it may be longer, but it didn't feel longer to me.
1: Um, remember when math comes over and he's a new player, and he, you know, we're gonna bring out that game. Matt was ready to play a four-hour game, uh, and, and and he was fully engaged. Not everyone could be, uh, so so this is a great uh, introduction in a gateway game, in my opinion, for players. Except for that thing, I wish it actually played in two and a half hours because then it would be
0: almost perfect. They'd be the perfect game. All right, let's move on to our member segment. Uh, So a couple weeks ago, I sent out an email to the other co-hosts and the idea I had was not exactly to do a game brain book club, but kind of unofficially maybe do it. Um, I had read a theory of fun by Raf Koster years ago, and it's very simple book about the nature of fun and the nature of games uh, that I felt was super accessible. And I thought let's get other co-hosts to read this. Maybe I'll throw it out there. If anybody wants to like imbra- you know, engage with certain chapters from the book or whatever. And also like, this could be a thing that game brainers out there could buy the book, read the book, and then we could have discussions on Facebook about it. So I sent out this email and I feel like five minutes later, you responded.
1: Uh, I did, uh, because the ideas uh, – well, first of all, I love reading. Right. Uh, and uh, I I don't know if I've heard you mention this book before uh, or mention books like it. Uh, but uh, when I looked at it on uh, Amazon, it seemed like – it addressed certain very interesting topics. And when I started reading it, uh, I said, it's talking about things that uh, were being addressed in the book that I was reading called the hidden spring about the nature of consciousness Mm -hmm. uh, and about the neurophysiology of consciousness uh, that came out either late last year or early this year. It's so hard to tell uh, in a pandemic uh that was uh, written by uh mark Solms, uh a, a big neurophysiologist uh about you know who's done thirty years of research uh and I thought oh we could talk about that we could i could talk about this we call ourselves game brain uh but we mostly talk about mm-hmm. games we don't really talk about brains and here's an opportunity to <laughs> right? out, <laughs> right? Uh, and, and talk about neurophysiology and talk about consciousness and talk about how brains work, but also answer some really practical questions, uh, like uh, should you get rid of some games or uh, get a new shelf? Um, should you keep buying expansions and new additions? Uh, should you keep trying to introduce your friend who doesn't like games to new games, hoping they'll find one that speaks to them. And all these questions have pretty decent, solid uh, uh, Bayesian background calculations that will tell you how to answer them. You know, uh, spoiler alert, alert, it's the former and yes and yes. But we'll talk about why that is and I think it'll be fun.
0: So yeah, like at the core of this uh book, you know, a theory of fun is it it goes straight at like what is fun? And like that's not an easy question, right? So when when you made this connection to Hidden Spring, was part of that helping to, you know, clarify in your mind like what is fun or even like, why do we play games? What's the thing that we get out of games when we play them?
1: Yes. Uh, For me, almost anything I do and almost anything anybody does uh, satisfies a basic need, Uh, Uh a basic mental need, a a, a basic emotional need. And uh, uh, Ralph Koster uh, talks about how, It's fun for brains uh, that that our brains are evolved and built to recognize patterns uh, and to seek and see patterns in nature. Uh, And for me, that's not a completely satisfying explanation uh, because seeking patterns is perception, uh, but... Games, for me, fill an emotional need. Uh, And what emotion is it that games fulfill? And fun, for me, is not really an emotion. Uh, Because an emotion, when I feel an emotion, it's something I can just sit and experience. I can sit and feel anger. I can sit and feel fear. I can sit and miss someone I love. But I can't sit and feel fun. Fun is something that I have to do something to have. The hidden space. Well,
0: maybe, uh, hold on. Expand, expand on that. Because like, the expression we use, we, we, if we were playing a game, we were together, Dimitri, I might say, are you having fun? You're yeah. sitting there, and are you having fun? And sometimes that answer would be yes,
1: yes, yes. but having fun uh, is a feeling that you get out of action, out of something being done to you, out of you being out of you doing something. Uh, and emotions are something feelings are, and I'm going to be technical here for a moment qualia that are conscious signals of deeply rooted needs uh, and the need to have fun is boredom uh, so fun extinguishes the feeling of boredom but again uh, I don't play games because I'm bored uh, I'm very seldom bored uh, I'm bored uh, When I'm bored, I can read, I can watch a movie, I can talk to someone. Why do I specifically play a game? What is the emotional need that the game satisfies that seems to be basic and and evolved and something I can maybe share with other mammals the way that other mammals feel anger The way they feel fear, the way they feel separation anxiety, the way they feel lust. What is it that we all have that games satisfy? What is that need uh, that games fulfill? Um, uh, And actually, there is an answer. There is an answer that uh, I read about in the book. Yeah, so so this is a, a Latvian researcher, uh, Jak Panskep, uh, who discovered hardwired uh, neuronal pathways in all mammals that correspond to seven basic emotions that all mammals have. Seven, of course, is a magical number, uh, but this is actually verified. This is... Uh, There's a a little area deep in the brain about the size of a guitar pick, the way I picture it, uh, called the periaqueductal gray uh, that sends neurons into the cortex, uh, and then the cortex sends back signals uh, to the periaqueductal gray, and those hardwired loops light up when we feel emotions. And there's seven of those that... Dogs, humans, rats, bats, cats, dolphins all have lust, anger, fear, disgust, uh, separation, anxiety, missing someone. We've all seen dogs outside of a cafe waiting for their owner. They're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Lost that experiencing abandonment, uh, seeking and play. Uh, and I left seeking... Play is and, an emotion? Play is an emotion. Uh, play, there okay. is... Uh, so, again, the idea is that there is some need, some deep internal drive, and it's. I know it's Freudian, Freud is out of fashion, but this is not Freud talking about stupid things. This is Freud actually identifying basic building blocks of the mind. All animals play, uh, all mammals play, Mm -hmm. uh, people play, uh, and it's an emotion that, that playing fulfills the need of social interaction, forming hierarchies and experimenting with hierarchies, uh, I'm a cowboy, you're the Indian, now let's switch sides. Uh, And in play, uh, it never goes beyond 60-40 in in terms of who dominates and and, and who uh, uh, doesn't. Uh, Seeking is very interesting. Seeking is not something people talk about as an emotion, but it comes from the same emotional area that governs anger and lust and so on uh, and it's a, a very similar hardwired loop and it's something you can see a dog do when they're in the backyard you, you, you know, sniffing around uh, the important thing is when we it's not really curiosity because curiosity we think of as intellectual this is a basic evolved emotional need to seek. Uh, and it's not looking for anything specific. It's not looking for a pattern. It's not hunting for prey. It, 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 it's not gathering berries or, or, or pollen. It just sniffing, sniffing around uh, uh, like a mouse or exploring. a dog. We, we've, seen, we've seen animals do it. It's also an evolved need because when you're in a new environment, it pays off to seek and find maybe places to hide or things to eat or tracks of a predator that you need to get away from. It's a very basic need. Games fulfill that.
0: Games combine- So maybe let me bring this back to... Um, sorry, let me, why don't I bring this back to what uh ref Coster talks about in the book and then you can kind of say maybe like where you diverge because it seems like my understanding of what ref like if he has a basic thesis you know he's kind of trying to drill down about like what fun is i think he would say that you know at the core of fun of playing a game is uh that learning is the drug like playing a game creates these you know great endorphins in our brain where it's rewarding but part of what's fun is the learning and so if we are playing a game and it doesn't and we're not learning from it anymore it ceases to be fun you know there's a reason in like the simplest example here is like when you're a little kid tic-tac-toe is still fun because you haven't fully understood it yet but as adults we all understand tic-tac-toe We're never going to lose a game of tic-tac-toe again in our lives, so we don't need to think about it anymore, and it no longer is going to produce fun. And so the question can then get a little more granular in terms of different experiences of like, when do we stop playing certain games? And I think his answer would be when we stop learning from them, that that's the time to move on. What are you, like, and I feel like your take is a little bit different here.
1: Uh, Yes, because uh, I feel he, uh, Costner is not wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he's applying a teleological result to an internal drive. Uh, There are many things I know of uh, that will benefit me. Uh, You know, a, a walk in the park will benefit me. Uh, uh, taking a class in real estate will benefit me Uh, that kind of cost benefit analysis uh, is very intellectual and behaviorist and economical and not surprising because people engage in cost benefit all the time that's not why I play games and I don't think that's why a lot of people listening to the podcast play games. I think we are driven to play games by an internal need, by an emotional need that needs to be satisfied. This drive, if we didn't have games, would drive us towards something else. It's not that games are a reward, it's that we have a drive to seek, we have a drive to play, and here's one thing that satisfies those two very basic, hardwired, built-in emotions, uh, like the same way that when we love someone, arguably, it's a combination of lust and abandonment, which are also two very basic drives and emotions. I'm not going to go out and do a thousand different things just because it might benefit me. But if I am internally, emotionally driven by something to do something that satisfies that, and games happen to satisfy that need, I'm going to do it. And for me, while... Fun is what I have when that need is satisfied. The existence of that need, the neurophysiological structure that instantiates it, the evolutionary processes that build that need into me and other animals, uh, and other mammals that I can see. I can see a dog doing it. I can see a mouse doing it. Uh, I can see a lion doing it. Uh, I can see myself playing a game. That is a very compelling explanation. Uh, Yak Panskep actually became convinced that all mammals were conscious uh, and stopped performing experiments uh, on them that caused them Pain or or displeasure or discomfort because of that. It, it it's basically we spend so much time playing games that it would be silly to to think that there isn't some inner internal built in hardwired motivation. Uh and and here it is, and I am right.
0: Well, the- well, tell me, tell me what I'm not tell me what I'm not understanding because like my, I would kind of like my perspective might be like as humans or as mammals or as animals, we are pleasure seeking, you know, we're, we're, you know, we like pleasure (laughs) generally. We like lots of it. Uh, you know, game players find a lot of pleasure in, in playing games. Like when you talk about needs, I almost feel like it's part of when you, when something's a need, then it can be satisfied. And when it comes to games, I don't feel like, yes, I can, I can find playing games satisfied, but I am not like, that's not the end of it. I will probably just want more of it. Right. It's not like, it's not a need in that sense. Um, where I'm like, okay, check. I've had my fun moving on. It's more like we're always seeking pleasure and, it's just a question of where we find it and like in different people are going to find that pleasure in different ways and game players tend to get a lot more pleasure out of this learning experience. And I think then it's just a question of like, when does that learning or where, when does that fun end? But it seems like you you're, you're saying, no, this is still an emotion and it's a need.
1: Uh, I find the emotional explanation more compelling uh, for a number of reasons, one is uh, very uh, from a very simple evolutionary perspective. Uh, if a, a, an animal has evolved to seek pleasure, it's just not going to survive. An eagle will swoop down on it and, and tear it into shreds. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that. Uh, I, I think pleasure is something that behaviorists and behavioral psychologists use as like punishment-reward. Uh, I don't think punishment-reward is uh, something that uh, actually governs our behavior as much as behaviorists think it does. I, when I look at my life, when I look at the things that uh, I do uh, regularly on a daily basis, uh, Noel Coward, uh, he's a playwright and screenwriter from the twenties and thirties and forties. He, he's a great wit. Said work is more fun than fun, uh, and and I find work pleasurable, of course, but I also find it tedious. Uh, and frustrating, and very, very, very hard. And for me, why do I do it? Why do I write? Uh, why do I talk to people? Uh, why do I play games? Why do I go to see movies? Uh, it's because I have a deep internal need to do so. It's because I am self-driven. Survival is a need. So it, like how do you know, how do you ensure survival so Sur- which is what evolution is all about survival is not a prize that you get and you don't get pleasure from survival you don't know when you've oh, achieved you <laughs> no no you don't know when you've achieved survival it's an
0: ongoing
1: process you don't know when you get to the end and you win survival you know, it, it's a process. You have to be. Well, you
0: definitely have moments where you feel like you've you've dodged death or you've avoided threat. We all have moments of like, who relief? There was oh, a thing, of course. and now but I'm done up. with it, and that's a pleasurable thing.
1: Yes, like like when uh, you know I dodge a car, <laughs> you know <Yes>. that <laughs> you know when I'm crossing a street, but it we can't like that sigh of relief is going to take a second, but we have to survive. We have to continue. We, we have to stay in homeostasis uh, in, in, in something that will allow us to live and breathe indefinitely until we stop. Uh, and you can't keep getting like, like Tom, when he says that, uh, Vital Lacerda keeps giving you a cookie, keeps giving you a pellet. Like with every, um, with every action, you keep getting a tiny little reward. Life is not like that. We could not have evolved. We could not have evolved to, I, I love Vital Serta, He's the greatest game designer, much better than you. Suck it, Tom. But we could not have evolved to get a little pellet. Every time we survive, every time we take a step, that's not how it works. We had to
0: evolve a drive to do No, but do the, it. Pellet, the pellet, bringing it back to Raf Koster here, the pellet is learning. When Tom's talking about that cookie, it's like the designer is posing another question. There's another mental thing to engage on. There's a question that's being asked that pl- a player, by experiencing the game, is engaging with and can possibly answer. You know, so th- this is the subject of the book. I encourage people to engage with it, but I wanted to shift now a little bit to like we were talking about like why we play games and maybe the needs for it. But you specifically were raising the question of like when we stop.
1: Yes, and uh, when you say when you talk about learning, uh, Ralph Koster uh, makes the point that when we've learned the game when we've learned everything we could about that game, we get bored and we move on. Uh, and there is, again, a, a, an interesting mechanism uh, uh, that uh, 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 that that explains that. Now, he, he, I think he calls it clustering. Well,
0: uh, you, you'll have different words. You could call it chunking or you could call okay. it grokking. Yes. That's blocking right. is specifically a term that gets Rock. used in game circles a lot. Yeah,
1: now, he he calls it chunking. Uh, uh, psychologists uh, uh, like Psalms uh, in in uh, uh, in uh, the Hidden Spring call it consolidation. Uh, and uh, I always think of consolidation as uh, something that happens. I, I used to play a violin in, in my uh, high school orchestra. Uh, or I, I, I had a couple of small parts in place. You learn your lines, you learn the notes, uh, and the brain consolidates that so you can do that task unconsciously. You're not thinking about right. what note I'm going to play next. You're not thinking about what am I going to say next. Or you a... might
0: not be thinking about what are your fingers doing on the frets, right? Like you, you're not thinking about, you're past that.
1: It's, exactly. It's been automated. And again, evolutionarily, that automation gives us a lot of advantages. Uh, it, it, it's much faster. When, when a process is unconscious, it's much faster than a conscious process. You're not thinking of where your fingers will go. Uh, an unconscious process is also more accurate. Because you're not thinking about it, you're much less likely to make a mistake your unconscious mind is faster and also more accurate. Also, a third point is it takes much less mental effort. It it takes less energy. It burns fewer calories. Uh, So at every opportunity, and again, this is in the hidden spring, and it's one of the paradoxes of consciousness and unconsciousness, is that even though we are thinking conscious beings, our brain is constantly trying to consolidate conscious processes into unconscious processes. That's what learning is. As we get better at something, we stop thinking about it. Uh, When I was playing violin during my high school production of West Side Story, I wasn't thinking about what note I was going to play next. I wasn't even thinking about uh, the lust that Tony is feeling for Maria. I wasn't having feelings uh, because the process was unconscious and I felt it less. I didn't feel it. It was unconscious. It was below my awareness. By definition. And this is a really good explanation for why games become less fun when we but learn. But your
0: point, your point in playing the violin, though, is like you're not saying you're bored of playing the violin. You're saying certain things have been automated or consolidated so that your brain is now moved on to other things that are engaging you.
1: Absolutely, uh, the 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 real the great professional musicians like Alfred Brendel or Mitsuko Uchida. Uh, Alfred Brendel doesn't have any emotion in his face when he's playing. Uh, he is invoking and arousing uh, emotions in me listening to him, but he's not. Feeling emotional he, he uh, Mitsuko Chido very famously uh has horrible expressions uh, on her face when, when, when she's playing she she's uh, <laughs> uh you know she she has weird faces uh, whatever feelings are, are, are happening that they're they're not really connected to the processes in the music uh, in performance arts uh uh, here's another example: Lin uh, Manuel Miranda, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, playing Hamilton. Uh, during uh, performances of Hamilton, he was when he was off stage or when he was on stage but not mic'd. He was having conversations and sharing jokes with members of the cast. Uh, the emotions that you're communicating through your unconsciously learned actions, you don't feel anymore uh it it again it's a paradox that once you've learned and once you've truly mastered something uh it's below your level of awareness it it's in your unconscious and and so it's not that fun uh you can get fun out of other things you can get fun out of communicating the emotion to an audience uh, and everyone who goes out on stage, like on Broadway, eight times a week, says every performance of uh, a, a play is different because every audience is different, and they're getting feedback. But they get they get the, the joy is from the feedback rather than from what you're doing. And this is something that you pointed out uh, because at game night. The joy is from the feedback that we may get from our fellow players,
0: right? Like that's some. A lot of times, the pleasures aren't in engaging with the game; it's engaging with the players. And the, you know, the the reference point for a lot of what Raf Coster's talking about can be a player his reference point tends to be more video games. So a lot of times it's about the player's relationship to the game. And I think one of the reasons we play board games is that this isn't simply the player's relationship to the game. It's that there's the part that we want to kind of consolidate from the game so we can get to the real game, which is playing with our friends and all of that interact interactivity there. And that's why some games have high replayability and other games Like, and it's probably why we're more dismissive of, and even using a dismissive term like multiplayer solitaire. Like, we feel like the lessons of those kinds of games tend to be short, easily comprehended, and we're ready to move on. And that's not really what we're here for anyway. But let me bring this back to. Or maybe and then you can jump in if you want to make your other point. You gave the example of going and playing a game with uh, Jennifer and Bruce in which you won the game and you had applied a number of things that in your opinion you had consolidated. Yeah. What so what so is part of what you're saying that like that experience of playing with them generally like wasn't fun? Or well, that the fun you had there ha- almost had nothing to do with the games that you played yourself? Uh,
1: the, the the fun had nothing to do with the game. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, we're all familiar with the term autopilot. Mm-hmm. I played those games on autopilot. I, I, I set certain settings, and, and, and then I just basically did it fair- semi-consciously. I mean, there were brand new games, so it's not exactly sure. like playing tic-tac-toe, but I engaged b- certain uh, consolidated unconscious processes. Uh, and um, when, I, when a game is fully learned, or even before the game is fully learned, if it's enough like other games that you played, it's not really challenging you to um, right uh, this,
0: this presents nothing new like that's a that's a problem with some games you play this and you're like I'm not feeling like there's anything yeah. new that I haven't already engaged with
1: I know this I know this Ralph Koster would say you're just not interested in it because you're not gonna learn more right but I don't think I'm re- I don't think I'm interested in learning and, and by the way I'm cute a big intellectual. You're
0: deeply idea. interested in learning. You're, of course, you're incredibly interested in learning.
1: I'm driven to learn. Yes, uh, it, it's it's it, it's not about the learning itself. It's not about like the learning as an achievement. I have a drive that that I recognize. And here, what's happening? There's again a neurophysiological explanation for why once you've mastered the game, it's not as fun because you've consolidated it. It's now become a, a mostly unconscious process. So you don't feel it as much. You, you don't feel the fun uh, as much anymore. Uh, and so, uh, go ahead.
0: No, just like maybe one distinction that I'm not sure I completely understand, or maybe that I'm, I'll take a slight issue with, is like in your example, you you were able to kind of like identify, here's what I'm doing when playing these games. You know, like I'm gonna engine build this, I'm gonna do that, I'm gonna do that. And like you were able to actually like put labels on them. And that seems to me a little in conflict with your kind of definition of like when certain processes become unconscious. Like there's I understand like when I'm driving a car, processes have become unconscious. I'm no longer thinking about putting my right foot on the accelerator, or if I'm gonna turn left, I'm gonna pull my left hand down and push my right hand. Up, like that's truly an unconscious process. You're describing more like there are certain lessons that you have learned that you are applying, and in fact, you like you can you can label these things. And I was thinking of the example of for a long time in the last year, I was doing the two no touch puzzles in the New York Times, and I would say like I'm at a point of consolidation where those puddles, puzzles, where I'm not saying that it's un- it doesn't feel like these are unconscious, but I've identified a set of rules that I can apply to those puzzles that will always result in a successful outcome now. So this game no longer provides a challenge for me. I, there still can be occasionally some pleasure in doing them and confirming, hey, you've successfully identified the rules that will successfully that will produce a successful result every time. Am I wrong to to make a distinction between applying these rules and this being an unconscious process in your language?
1: Uh, You are not wrong um, because as long as you can consciously identify it, your conscious mind is involved. But consolidation is happening. You are taking a mental effort. Uh, as a self-aware game designer and game player to actually look at yourself thinking to 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 actually perceive what's happening in your mind in order to learn a lesson that you can apply in your game design and apply in your later gameplay you are analytical that way But if you weren't motivated to do that, if you weren't motivated to observe yourself thinking and putting labels on what you're doing and actually making unconscious processes conscious, you would just do them on autopilot. You would just do them automatically and you'd actually get bored faster. Because in a lot of games that you play right now, your main interest is in the meta understanding of what's happening while you're playing the game rather than in the game itself.
0: Yeah, I think and, this is an important topic. I mean, we the games we decide not to play, you know, ends up being as important as the decisions that we make to play games. Like we're doing this constantly. Of, you know, whether it's in the form of a rating, but like, there are games like, yeah, I'll play that game again, but I may not be excited about it. And some of that is that calculation of like, does this game still hold interesting questions for me? Like, is there fun there? Or has a game become rote? And I feel like this is in the realm that we're in all the time with Game Brain in terms of like, how do we, you know, are we, we're lazy, we want to be efficient in our use of time to get the maximum fun out of the time that we can devote to playing games. And we're making those decisions all the time.
1: Uh, And we need to make those decisions because we have a drive. We are driven uh, to play these games that fulfill an emotional need for us. And although what I'm saying may seem abstruse and and, and kind of, you know, Dimitri, you're talking about brains, I'm also talking about (laughs) brains. Because there's certain, again, there's certain very practical conclusions that fall out of this. Don't get a new shelf. Feel free to sell off that right. game. If you're not interested anymore, you've consolidated it. Your gameplay of it is unconscious. It's like driving a car for you. It's a perfectly natural process. Uh, Your are Evolved mind has done this to minimize your mental effort, to make you more accurate, uh, to make you make those decisions faster. Completely natural. Get rid of it. Sell it off. Don't get a new shelf. On the other hand, do get the expansion. Do get the Ah. new addition. Because what happens when you have to relearn a game or or add a, a twist? to a process that you've consolidated, it's not like you're taking, like adding a coin to a piggy bank. You actually have to smash the piggy bank. You actually have to unconsolidate that unconscious process, relearn the game consciously, and then reconsolidate it. This is actually what happens to our memories. Every time we try to remember something that happened to us, we actually bring the memory out of the unconscious or bring the memory out of where it's stored, reconstruct it, and then we remember what we reconstructed, not the memory itself. Be careful when you look yeah, at we, we rewrite it. Yeah, We rewrite it. It's proven it's 100% true so be careful when you look at pictures on your phone and look at old posts on your facebook you're now remembering not the original incident but the memory of your you're mem- remembering a memory of the memory of the memory of the incident and it's the same thing with the consolidation of, of strategies so yes it's worth it to buy an expansion Yes, it's worth it to buy a new map of Age of Steam because you're now reconsolidating it. It's now fun again. It's now not completely unconscious. You can now feel it uh and even when you it, it also suggests that when you buy that new map of Age of Steam, you can play the old ones with more fun because the they're not fully unconscious anymore. Right. They're, they're
0: always breaking, breaking up those assumptions and things that we that we think that we've consolidated.
1: That's right. And finally, if I'm right, and I am right, uh, and it's not <laughs> just it, it's Yak Panskab, it, it's yeah. Mark Psalms. It's all these people who say, everything that you do Fulfills a basic drive. It's not just the prize that you get at the end of it. It's because you're driven internally to do so uh, in a process that cannot be satisfied because it, it's always a struggle for survival. It's always a st- struggle to maintain homeostasis in your mind and your organism. So yes, that friend who tells you they don't like games. They have the same drive that we do. We all have these same drives. We all have a drive to seek and play. They just haven't found the right one. Keep inviting them. You you know, they didn't like 20 games. They might like the 21st. Because this is a basic drive. This is a basic emotion. It is evolved. It is something we share with all mammals. Uh, So... Keep in mind, as long as they're willing to come, uh, there will be a game out there that will will, will spark that for them, uh, th- that that will turn them on to games.
0: Sometimes a player just got to know which game should stay, which game should go, which to play with, mama, madame, boo. You got to tell me, monsieur, just what to do. To make an impression, but I can't get far. It's my fiftieth play of Agricola. A million games. Show me the way to the master. The game sommelier. All right, Alexander Kutsoris. That's supposed to fade out really gradually there. When I click it, by the way. Sorry, sorry for the abrupt ending. Alexander Kutsoris writes. Dear GameBrainers, thank you for making my day brighter every time I listen to your podcast. With the COVID vaccine still on the horizon and isolation still in place, I'm looking for a two-player game which makes you laugh. I know party games can be played online with multiple people, but I'm looking for something to play live with my significant other. I hope you have some suggestions which can liven up the day. Dimitri, tough topic here.
1: Uh, it is a very tough topic. Uh, uh, I am very lacking in the sense of humor department uh, in that <laughs> what makes me laugh is often weird, uh, 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 you, you know. Uh, uh, but in any case, uh, I have three suggestions. Uh, the first is the mind. Uh, and it's a game that two people can play uh, where you're dealt out two cards, then four cards, then six cards and so on. And you have to uh, try to read each other's mind to put those cards down in numerical order. Uh, and the cards are valued and from one is it, one and is one it
0: funny when you lose? Is it funny when you screw up in that game?
1: It's also funny when you win. It really does feel it, – it, you can't How's talk. How's that? But you can't talk, but you right. can – Look at each other. You can communicate, and then you can like move forward. And do I lay this down? Uh, I have a twenty-five. How quickly do I lay down my twenty-five? Because there's a chance that uh, uh, my gaming partner will have a seven. But if they're waiting and waiting and waiting, I'm going to think they probably have more like a seventy rather than a seven. It's just really enjoyable. I, I, I think uh, when things work out in that way, uh, it's funny when things fail in that way. It's funny. funny. Uh, it's not a joke. Uh, but it's filled with humor. Um, somebody has this theory, I forget who, uh, that we laugh at each other when we, we uh, look like machines or robots, where it doesn't ha- it doesn't feel like we have volition, or where our control over ourselves breaks down. Once we slip on a banana peel, whatever plan we had of taking the next step is foiled and we lose control. So for me, the mind exists on that boundary where we think we know and we have a plan versus we don't really know, and it keeps crossing it back and forth, and and and, and that for me makes it a funny game. I have two okay, more. What's next? You want to take? T- okay. So the next one is uh, air, land, and sea, uh, and it's a game mm, that yep. Paul and Matt played a lot. And they laughed hysterically. And again, it, it, it's a war game, so it's not funny. But, uh, like, thematically, it's not funny. But it's also a bluffing game. It's a game where mm-hmm. you're trying to create the impression in your fellow player that you're planning to do something that you're not. <laughs> or, or you, you know, that you have cards that you do you, you don't actually have, you're, right. you're trying to fool them. Uh, it, it's lying. You know, lying isn't funny, of course, in real life. But when you're trying to lie to someone in the middle of a game and they find out, uh, then, that, that, you, you know, it, it's a delight. It's a delight to you. It's a delight to the other person. Uh, also, if you're successfully fooled, uh, then I, I find that delightful because uh, I'm, I'm so seldom wrong that just the process. The, yeah, there's, some the moments, there's some moments, moments in that uh, game
0: where if, if you, I, I know what you're talking about. Like there's sometimes we're like, Oh, if, if you know, cause you don't always get the same cards in the game, but it's like, Oh, if, if Dimitri has this card, I'm completely screwed. And then you flip that card. Like, of course you have that card. Of course, you know, yes. like there's those, yes. those kind of moments.
1: Uh, it, it's fatalistic, right? But and I grew up in Kiev. Uh, Russians are appropriately <laughs> fatalistic because nothing good happened in Russia since it started, uh by since it was started by the Greeks. Uh, I I believe our, our our correspondent is Greek. So uh Greeks have a fatalistic view of history as well, so uh in in certain parts. Uh so it you know, defeat is funny you know, somebody else... Your All right, number
0: three. Number player.
1: three. Number three is a modified version of a game that I, I really love that's usually um, played with lots of players. That's Boulder Dash. Uh, and in a Boulder Dash, uh, you gain points. You're, you're dealt out... Uh, one person is dealt out the real definition of a very obscure word or term. Uh, three or four other players make up a false one, uh, and then you get points by guessing the right one or by som- somebody convincing right. you that their definition is right. I think this is a game that could, with a modification, be played with two people where one person guesses a definition, the other person uh, writes down three of their own definitions without looking at the real definition, And then writes down the real definition. And if one of their three false definitions fools you, uh, they get the point and then you switch. Uh, And for me, uh, it's a little more work because you do have to come up with three false definitions. But it's just as much fun and it's just as funny. Uh, And you can go really wild because you you have three chances to fool uh, your partner.
0: Oh, so, so you're you're writing multiple fake definitions rather than one. That's right. As you normally would do, and you just have multiple players, and then you kind of vote on it. Yeah,
1: That's yeah. The, I mean, I was. This is a tough one, right?
0: Because like, there's really almost like no such thing as a two-player party game. Like almost by definition, those things are not the well, they're 2 the same thing.
1: Player party games, but they're not really within the pur- purview uh, uh, of game brain.
0: Mm, okay, well, what what distinction are you making? Like two pe- is two people a party? Uh,
1: two people can can be a party. Uh, uh, like uh, a game I used to play in junior high school a lot is where I would make up a mystery uh, with characters, uh, and my friend would be the detective, uh, and I would act out uh, uh, the characters and the clues for them. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, if you're both nerds and and, and have a couple of hours uh, <laughs> right. to waste and, and both of you have been reading Sherlock Holmes stories since you were six, that
0: can be fun. But it's not. Yeah, game. there's something about like a party game to me almost suggests that there can be an audience component that like it's light it's funny but it's also like people there's plenty like there's there's pleasures to be gained from from merely observing the thing going on like it can be fun to watch people play balderdash or you know um like even ricochet robots like you you know right like there there can be there's a performance aspect but there's also an audience and i think what you're talking about with your detective mystery is like it's an audience of one and that's and that's uh and The, this was a tough one. Um, the one I suggested for you, Alexander, and it's a game I haven't played, but I really want to play is a game called uh, fog of love, which is billed as a romantic comedy in a box. And it is specifically a two person game. So playing it with your significant other is like the design of the game, and I think it even has like diff- not exactly missions, but it has different scenarios that are going to like intentionally take you through different steps of a, like a romantic comedy in which you're making choices together, where you're kind of like playing it cooperatively in order to to get a result. And I've heard very good things. uh It's also one of these games that I th- think has skewed towards women enjoying it quite a bit. Like women, uh, I've heard from a number of women players they like this game, and so that might be the thing that you're looking for, but I haven't played it myself and I'm eager to play it, but this is the thing that popped into my mind. You have been listening to Game Brain, produced and edited by Matthew Robinson, Tom Donnelly, and Trey Olson. Special thanks to Daedalus for our incredible music. More on Daedalus at GameBrainPod.com. You can reach us by email at contact at GameBrainPod.com or on Twitter at GameBrain underscore pod. Thanks for listening and go play some games with friends
1: and go make some friends with games.